It can be found on page 1074 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let that person be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let that person be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Katie. I invite you uh, to pray with me as we begin. Our God of grace, as we come into this place this morning and consider what you might have to say to us through these scriptures and even through my own words, I, I ask you to open our ears. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be active in a supernatural natural way and that we hear your voice. We hear it as if um, in almost a, an eerie way in that we, know, we feel like you're talking directly to us this morning. You're pointing out ways in which your grace and your love needs to invade our lives. As we come here, we come with different backgrounds and different stories. And, and, and quite frankly, all of us, though, are, are just not holding our lives together nearly to the degree that we'd like the world to think. We don't want to admit, but we don't have it all together. We're broken. We may be trying to hold it together. We may even think we're doing a pretty good job until whatever's going to happen next month happens or whatever's going to happen two years from now happens and then all of a sudden it all falls down. None of us ha- can hold our life up. None of us have it all together. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. And your story here, your grace that is promised says, even as we are more broken than we care to admit, At the very same time, because of your work through Christ on our behalf, we're actually more loved and accepted than we ever dreamed. The love and the grace that you have for us, even amidst our greatest failures, is beyond anything we could make up and imagine. 
So now use that grace and that, that love for us to teach and transform us through this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, I went to a summer camp that was a Christian camp, and uh, it was in the hills of uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains area, Scotts Valley, Mount Hermon was the place. And at this uh, summer camp, we played this game in this huge swimming pool. It was one of those rectangular swimming pools that you could have all these rows and do laps if you wanted. And in this pool, they, what they would do is they took a giant watermelon, one of those big seeded kinds, and they covered the whole thing with Vaseline and then had two teams and threw the watermelon in the middle. And it was polo, right? It was like, get the watermelon to the other side. Hilarious. I mean, the, just the concept. Can you imagine? And it really is as funny as, as, in action as it is as you just think about the concept. Just impossible to hang on to this thing. Just a comedy of errors as you watch people trying to move it forward, but it just doesn't want to go anywhere. And just when you think you've got it, you know, there's constantly this thing that happens, and then it's still back there, you know, and it's just, it just doesn't work, right? And it's constantly that watermelon slipping through your hands. It looks fun to play. It looks like, oh, that's going to be a, a blast. Super frustrating. And, uh, and you do end up just laughing most of the time while you're trying to play this game. Um, watermelon, greased watermelon water polo, I guess is what you'd call that. Friends, the gospel that we're, that we're focusing on throughout this entire book of Galatians, the gospel itself, that core message of the Christian faith is like that game. It's like trying to hold on. It's like that greasy watermelon because it's always slipping. You can't keep your hands on it. You can't keep a grip on it. Just when you think you have it, the next minute you don't. What's going on with this? That's actually what the core message of the Christian faith is like. You say, well, why would I want to even be a part of this thing if it's like that? But it's, you, you might get it and it might click and it's so good or you might think you have it, but actually it's slipping through your fingers. You don't have it. And, and this whole book of Galatians and our reading from today, just this first reading, is all about this thing, the gospel, and how it's slipping for the people that this letter is being written to. This is what, uh, if you look just at the heart of this passage, it's um, you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let that person be under God's curse. And then he says that exact same thing over again. Gospel, 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 gospel. It's all, this letter is all about the gospel and it's slipping out of their fingers. And it's a really big deal. Um, what has happened is the Apostle Paul, and if you have a Bible nearby, kind of fun, because there is a, a map in the back, and the, I think it's the last map that you can find in there. No, the second to last is a two-page thing like this that shows the missionary journeys of Paul. The three mis- missionary journeys that he made, the ones that are most well-documented, um, are bo- all involve him going through this region of Galatia, through to these cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so as he goes through, he starts communities in these cities that that just didn't have any understanding of Jesus or the Christian faith and just, you know, his work is blessed. And in all these little cities in this place called Galatia, this region, um, they probably had some close connections. They probably had regional connections. But in these four different cities and towns, he gets churches starting with the gospel But what has happened is, over time, is that, uh, and what Galatians, this letter is all about, is that 
Others have come along. Others have come in um, from the region of Jerusalem. So they're kind of viewed as, you know, they're from the real home base of the Christian church. So these, these folks have come in from Jerusalem as Paul, he, he traveled and he started these, these churches and then he went on elsewhere to start them. And as he left, others came in and they had the upgrade. They had the, you know, Christianity 2.0. And you know how that is when you get the sense of like, you know, someone kind of has this air of telling you that, you know, well, yeah, what you've got is good, but it's sort of, um, eh, you know, you don't quite have the newest version. You don't quite have the, the, the strongest version. You don't have quite the... Um, you know, the stuff that, that really needs to be added to this, and that's actually going on with this church, and it's catching on with these people and these churches in the realm of Galatia. Everything in this letter of Galatians helps us understand and shows quite clearly that this is what's happening. So they're shifting what they kind of hold to, and what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, they're, they're being told that what's really necessary, not just to have this faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you know, your, your route to being okay with God through Jesus. Yes, and we also, what we're here to help you understand is that you also need to have the Jewish ceremonial laws, you know, the same laws Jesus followed as he was growing up in Jerusalem. You need to have those in place as markers. In fact, if you don't have these Jewish identity markers in place, your, your connection to God and acceptability before God are actually in doubt and actually in questions. And we really don't want that. So we want to get everyone up to snuff. Everyone upgrade. Come on, download the upgrade. You know how that goes. Everyone, have you, up, have you uploaded it? Have you upgraded it? And that's the sense of what these, these new folks are doing. It really makes us think, like, if you've ever thought about kind of these days of the early church as this is one group and they all kind of are, no, no, it was chaotic and there were factions and there were groups and there were subtleties and different teachings. And this is one where the Apostle Paul is saying, this is a problem. Another thing that's going on that we'll see over the weeks is that it seems that as soon as they might have said to these new teachers, as soon as they might say, well, yeah, but, but Paul, he taught us that, you know, those ceremonial laws and... Uh, and so forth, those Jewish identity markers, that Jesus came to fulfill those and really put those behind us. And now they are not actually these requirements of becoming acceptable before God, and that the response of these teachers clearly was something to the nature of just um, kind of questioning Paul's standing, questioning Paul's, you know, Paul, you know, you can sense them from this book, you sense that they were saying something like, oh, you know, Paul, we love Paul, you know. You got to love this guy, you know, he's doing this hard work out there, he's getting these things started, you know, but we've really found that we need to come around and, and you know, kind of clean up the messes that this guy, I mean, the great work that he does, but we've got to come in and sort of shore up and, and, and bring it up to snuff, you know, kind of the institutional things that need to really be paid attention to that he's not so good at. And so they, they tended to kind of downgrade him and suggest that he wasn't on the real in-group in Jerusalem and that he wasn't, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe quite as level of the apostle as the other apostles that were with Jesus. And, these, and this, this group of people have come to be called the Judaizers. That comes from chapter 2 in Galatians where Paul says, talks about these people as Judaizing. He creates this verb. All right, so the gospel's slipping. That's just, a, sorry for the little historical background, but we're going to be in this for several weeks. Why is the gospel so slippery? Why does it always seem to be, and why does this letter seem, to, it's just slipping out of their fingers and they can't get a grip on it. Why is that true? Why, does it, why is it that way? 
A couple of things in this passage that, that explain it are, um, are first that we always tend to reverse the gospel. And secondly, the gospel always tends to humble us. So two things going against us, keeping a firm grip on the gospel. First of all, we always tend to reverse it. Now, we're going to see that in this letter. We're going to see that the, that the Galatians basically, although they think they're just adding a couple subtle things to their main message, they've actually completely reversed it. And that's what Paul's upset about. He's really upset about it. You notice how upset he is? We didn't even read it, but in one place in this book, he says that these agitators who have come in and changed the gospel, this is how he puts it. He says, I would rather that they go the whole way. Now, he's talking about circumcision because they're they're saying, no, we all need to be circumcised, that that old Jewish thing. He says, I'd rather see them go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's how upset he is. So that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the the grotesque, kind of in-your-face way that Paul shows how big of a problem this is, that the gospel is slipping through their hands. He's upset. Um, A real subtle literary nerd kind of way that he expresses his frustration is in this letter, right where there should be classically the, the thanksgiving portion of the letter, and this, you see this in all his other letters. Your letters are structured very carefully in the ancient world. And so he gets to this point in verse 5. He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then this is right where in verse 6 where you have the thanksgiving section. Where in all his other letters, he applauds the church. He lists all these. I mean, we know today how you, you give a criticism sandwich. You know, you have that big, you know, hey, you're doing great at this. You mention all these wonderful things about the person. Then you have this little criticism. And then you have the, all these wonderful things at the end about how they're and that's what he does in these letters, and he doesn't do it in this way. He does, at the beginning, he's got the Thanksgiving section. Look at one of them sometimes in the other letters. Just pours out all this praise for them, and this is what he says in this one. I am astonished. That's, that's where it was supposed to say, I am so grateful. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you. So instead of a Thanksgiving section, so he's being like, he's getting them with his literary technique even, that's how big of a deal this is. And then he gets into verse 8 and 9. He's talking about who should be cursed if they're preaching the wrong kind of gospel. I mean, these are some intense words. He seems to be going ballistic. He seems to have popped a cork. I mean, this is what is going on. Is he out of line? Well, it all comes down to, and it's all explained, really, I want to suggest, by, by this one word in verse 7 that we have translated here as pervert are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And the best explanation of this word, which is metastropho, metastropho in Greek, the best suggestion of this word that I've seen to explain what's going on here is is that this word is used often to suggest something has, has been turned backwards. So something has been reversed. Not just changed, not just, you know, tweaked, not just kind of, but actually reversed. The order is reversed. And there's this very real sense in which everything Paul says in this letter suggests that that's exactly what's happened, is that these people in Galatia are reversing the very way that the message of the Christian faith works. And when you reverse it, you no longer have it. And what do I mean? Well, when you look at verse 4, which Martin Luther, once upon a time, he wrote a very famous work called The Commentary on Galatians. It's had a huge impact on the church since he wrote it in the 1500s. And he says the entire book is summarized in verse 4 with the phrase that Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Christ gave himself 
for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Martin Luther says that's the whole book of Galatians. Why? Well, you look at how it's, it, it, the focus is on God and God is rescuing us from this present evil age. Now, just to give you a picture of how the Galatians have reversed the gospel, let's focus on the word rescue. Let's say I've been re- I, I come to you and say, it's amazing. You, know, you say, what did you do Memorial Day weekend? Oh, I went for this hike. I got super lost. It was this huge ordeal, but you know what? I got rescued. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's great. That's amazing. Tell me more. And if my answer was, well, what happened was I got stuck in this ravine and I was lost. I mean, I was completely stuck. Oh, how did the rescue happen? Well, first I clawed my way up this sheer rock thing, one foothold at a time, then I got to the top of this cliff. And then in front of me was a wilderness that was just hot and the sun was beating down on me, but I just clawed my way forward and got through it. And then I met this forest with all this deep undergrowth and I got out my machete and I chopped my way through it. And you're like, yeah, 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 tell me more about the rescue. Well, then I got to the end of that and I saw a clearing and I went across the clearing and when I got to the end of the clearing, I could see, I could see Sacramento. And so I started, I got excited, I started running and I suddenly had this new burst of energy and I ran all the way home, got into my house, took a shower, had a meal, had a bunch of water and here I am. And you say, Mark, that's not a rescue story. Nobody rescued you. What are you talking about? You're crazy. That's exactly, that's, that's what we're doing constantly as the Christian message comes to us. We are people who love a self-rescue story. We, it, it pains us to consider that it works exactly like this, that he gave himself, he gave himself for us, for our sins, to rescue us. It pains us to enter into that. And so we reverse it. It's our daily preference. That's why the Christian faith is, like, is slippery. It's so hard to hang on to because we're always wanting to reverse it and to say, no, we rescue ourselves. We climb our way into acceptability with God. The human plan is always, you know, I, wanna, I need to be reformed. I'm going to reform myself. The gospel says, be rescued. You know, we're always saying, do. The gospel says, done. We're always saying, you know, we're going to do all these things and we find ourselves, we've moved into bondage really by all these things that we've hung over our head and the Christian gospel always says, liberation. We're always heading down the road that leads towards, uh, towards you know, pride in the tribe and the gospel's always saying, liberation from sectarianism. Only Christianity. Now, I would, I'm with you. I would, I would love to be able to talk to all those people and there are many in my life who who have no interest in the gospel. It doesn't have credibility for them. They don't care about church. They don't care about Jesus. I would love to look every single one of those people in the eye just like you would. And it pains me that, in a way that uh, not to, but to be able to just say, you know what? Your way is exactly as good. Your path is the same. All, every route to God is exact. I would love to be, I honestly would love to be able to say that, but the truth is, the gospel has an order to it, and there's, there's no other path has the same order. And the Galatians really are just kind of flipping it like we all do to the order that's much more acceptable. But only Christianity looks at you and says, without having lifted a single religious finger, stand in the full acceptance of God your maker. That no other path 
says that to you. Everybody reverses it and says, do some things. We're, you know, thank you for your interest in our, in our path. Let us show you the things that you now do to get to the place where you can finally rest and be secure. Well, I'm not doing a very good job at it. Well, do a better job at it, and then you'll feel rested and secure, and you'll have some assurance. Only the Christian faith reverses that and says, you don't obey in order to be accepted. You're accepted to wake up to potential for obedience, to wake up to the ways you can actually not be reformed in order to meet God's approval, but to be rescued in order to respond. That's the Christian faith. No, and it's so counterintuitive that that quote in your worship guide is, is a, just a marvelously simple way to put it. Um, this quote by, I don't even know who this guy is. I just stumbled on the quote. John Q. Hall. And I don't know who he is, but this quote is perfect. The gospel is like fish. It must be caught fresh every day. It could be a made-up quote and a made-up name for all I care, but that is, that is so so true, and that is so what the book of Galatians is all about. The gospel is like fish. It must be caught fresh every day. Well, have you caught it, or is it slipping? It's possible to... I, I've, I've experienced this. You've probably experienced this. You don't even have to be involved in church life to connect with, with this kind of example. Someone can convert to Christianity, can get baptized and join and be gung-ho about the Christian faith, even annoyingly so to all their friends, Right? And yet they still need to convert to the gospel. What am I talking about? I'm talking about, you know, you know the story. You know, I used to live this way. I used to be into whatever. Name your, name your things. I was into drugs. I was sleeping around. I was um, doing all these things that, you know, just, I, I just, it was leading nowhere. It was a dead end. You know, it was like poison in my life. But I, I, I became a Christian and turned my life around. I no longer do those things. I, you know, when I became saved, it was like now all that stuff's behind me. And you poke around enough, and, and it's very possible to, that what's happening there, and it often bears out, is that what's, you really just had a, had a morality shift. The grace, acceptance, and freedom, that's not the new thing. The new thing is I cleaned up my life. You know, you, it, this is just, so you can be converted and still need to convert. The order matters. Have you reversed the gospel? I'm sure you have at some point. Even people who, who have never stepped into a church, you know, even someone who has no interest, their view of, if, let's say it's a friend of yours or a relative, their view of what you believe is reversed already. We come predetermined with it switched. It makes it so hard even to talk about the gospel. If it's clicked for you, if you do have the greasy watermelon in your hand, <laughs> it makes it so hard to talk about, so slippery even to talk about because you've got to kind of then no, it actually works in reverse of what you're assuming. Have you reversed it? And Paul, the way Paul says it is really shocking. In verse 6, he's saying that you have so quickly deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, why is that so shocking? Because they've actually deserted God in their very pursuit of God. They think they're vigorously pursuing Him more than they were before, and yet actually in the process of it, They've deserted God. Um, we're so prone to reverse it. It's such a problem that um, one quote um, from a church historian as he talks about Martin Luther, and Martin Luther kind of awoke much of the church in the Western world back to the kind of core, kind of reversed it back and said, this is how the gospel works. 
We don't work our way to God. God came down to us. He, he did the work to get us and bring us up. And so as Martin Luther discovers that this is what this, is what this church historian says. The heart and essence of Luther's theological contribution then was salvation as a free gift of divine mercy for which the human person can do nothing. Many modern Protestants and even Catholics take this idea for granted as if it has always been believed. But this is to ignore the revolutionary role played by Luther, and listen to this, in recovering what had been largely lost and ignored for over 1,000 years. How huge of a deal is it that we reverse this? How hard is it to hang on to? You could, he's basically saying that the Western church went 1,000 years with it reversed. That's how, big, that's how hard it is. And, but then, man, when it clicks, um, one of the quotes by Martin Luther, and then, and then we'll move on to the second point, one of the things he says about when it clicked for him, when he, finally got that, when he finally got it reversed and got that greasy watermelon in his hands and got a grasp on it, he says, then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through the grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And he, this is what he said. This is what it's like when you, when you finally reverse it. He says, Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise through open gates. He says, There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. In other words, you can look at the Bible and if you got the order wrong, you see it all one way. Switch the order of how it works with God, the Bible comes alive in a whole new way. Some of you know my story. I've told it several times. I've told it in our dive groups. That's exactly what happened to me about seven years ago. Now, secondly, now, so we tend to, re- we t- we tend to reverse it. It tends to humble us. The gospel constantly wants to humble us. In verse 4, what is our role? Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Well, what's our role in that? Well, what's our role? (laughs) Basically, it shows us that our role, sorry, let me find my place here a second, (laughs) that our role is, well, what is our role? It's kind of difficult to find. What's our role in the gospel? Well, we're involved in the sin part and the evil age part, it looks like, and then we get rescued. That's our role. The gospel humbles us. It's always trying to humble us. It's not very, that's not a flattering picture. It pushes against all our urges to control with God. It pushes against all our issues to try to achieve with God, to try to win in some way, you know, to get a, in some way to get a sticker or a ribbon. We all want a sticker, you know. We all want a sticker with God. And Paul, as he writes, is well aware, because he's seen it and he's hearing about it in Galatia, he's well aware about what begins to happen as soon as you start to go turn the gospel into yourself, getting a sticker, is that as soon as it becomes meritorious, then you move right on to making distinctions within the community, which leads to factions within the community, which leads to division, and which leads to hierarchy, which leads to a kind of unhealthy tribalism that in this context they're trying to have this kind of a... Jewish tribalism over against Gentile culture, and it becomes an utter, sheer, ungracious, unloving mess. So the Christian, what does the Christian do? Well, the gospel is always trying to humble you so that you're looking at this gospel message, and what the gospel basically invites you to do is constantly to be revering and reveling in 
the incredible, lavish abundance that is given to you and accomplished for you through Jesus. So just to have a constant reflection on the awe and trying to marvel at what is, is just there for you all because of Jesus. And there's a, a thousand ways through Scripture and through our own lives to, to find that and to find awe and inspire and revel in, oh my goodness, what I have been given. Oh my goodness, the level of blessing which is mine because of Jesus. Oh, how incredible it is to have Jesus in my life. What an amazing shepherd, what an amazing Lord, what an incredibly gracious presence to pray to every day. That's one half of it as you think about verse 4, just thinking about the one who rescued you and what that rescue is like. The other half of it to keep in, that the gospel invites you to constantly keep in mind is assessing how little I or you have actually done to get any of it and to earn any of it. Now, the chasm between those two things, the incredible blessing that is yours in Christ and the, the sheer absence of any evidence of you deserving it, the gap between those two is so huge. It's like the Grand Canyon of our spiritual lives. If you're looking at them, if you're focusing at both of them and seeing that chasm, you are likely to keep the gospel in your grip. You're likely to, to have it grow and to fo- bring new growth and new growth in your life because you're, holding, you're seeing that chasm, the accurate picture of us before God with Jesus. And we're constantly, I mean, we just, this is just what we want to do. We're, we're constantly kind of drawing, getting a little bit tired of looking over there and getting, drawing our attention to this little bridge we're building across the chasm. Well, you know, we're, we're here, yeah, but, yeah, but th- you know, we're constantly drawn to set our eyes on something that we can say, yeah, but, you know, here's something that I'm doing that certainly reveals something of my specialness and my goodness in this equation somewhere. And the gospel always just keeps humbling us and drawing our attention either to our sheer absence of proof that we've deserved any of it and the incredible, shocking abundance that we've been given. I like how the, Jesus' parable of the vineyard workers um, draws this out perfectly in picture form, in story form, because you've got these, these people who, um, they're looking at a day of zero, zero work and zero income, zero purpose in life. They're standing in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them. And so they're totally at the mercy of whoever might come and give them a job for the day. Forever, how much, how much the pay is going to be, whatever the person decides, the amount of work is going to be however much the person decides. So they're just, they're all sitting there, but then people are hired sequentially throughout the day. So the, the employer comes and gets some more. The employer comes a few hours later, gets some more. The employer comes at the, almost the end of the day, gets some more. And the parable expresses that when it's pay time, they're all paid exactly the same. You may maybe heard this. This is like the, the shocking injustice of the gospel, of grace. So, of course, the people who've been working all day are furious. They're furious. The people at the end got paid the same for working one hour, one hour of work. What does that parable do? What is Jesus doing with us? Jesus is saying, get your eyes off of your, what you deserve. Get your eyes off yourself and turn, remember I had the canyon, turn your eyes to the dramatic generosity of what has been given in that, in that parable, in fact, if you're to put yourself in it and if you kind of view yourself as the worker who was there all day, the, the concept is 
to that your reaction in this world would be one of joy when you see God's generosity um, unfairly distributed. That you're so in touch with the generosity, so excited about what that means for everyone else. In other words, your eyes are so fixed on what you have. You know, and the parable basically is like, well, look, you know, you had no guarantee that you were going to work at all today. So who are you to complain? Get your eyes on the employer. Get your eyes on the farmer. Get your eyes on God and how much grace there is and how it's being handed out. And if that picture of it doesn't work, let me suggest a brand new one, for, um, especially for you computer nerds out there. Um, one time when I was in college and I had my first uh, computer and it had, a, it had a hard drive in it that was, it had this huge amount of space. You know, we, we hadn't seen computers like this before where it had, it had um, I think it had six gigabytes of storage in it. Huge, massive computer. I mean, how, how, where, why would you even need that much? I mean, how are you ever going to run out of space? Six gigabytes. You know, now there's like, you know... Uh, a thousand is standard, like entry level, you know, 500,000. Okay, so at the time, I did this thing that I, I love that I did it because I understand a lot of our world better now since I did it. I got this book from the library that illustrated how a computer works in all the different parts. Um, it was kind of unlike me at the time, but I, for some reason, got curious and I, and I was like, well, this, it was a picture book, so that helped me. It was kind of like an early version of YouTube. And, it, you know, so here's how all these parts were the RAM, there's the hard drive, there's the. Um, um, the CPU, you know, there's the monitor. How does it all work? And, and so I found out about a hard drive. What a hard drive is, is it's a bunch of disks that spin in place. And some of you nerds could to do better than me, so just forgive me, but this is my knowledge of it. A bunch of disks spinning in place, and there's an arm across them like this that's reading, and it's moving, and there's all this moving. These disks are spinning, the arm is moving, and it's reading all the data off these spinning disks. You ever wonder why your, you know, your laptop is hot on your lap when you're on the couch? It's because of all this action that's happening in the hard drive. It's spinning. Let's apply this to the gospel. So, constantly spinning. If, you know, if you've got the, the, the hard disk. Now, there's another kind of, there's another kind of hard disk. There's a, there's a solid state drive I'm about to introduce to you, all right? This is the gospel. But if you've got this old way, constantly spinning, right? All these moving parts creates all this heat. It, even over, it can overheat. It's prone to crashing. If anybody had a hard drive crash, one of those hard drives crashed, I have. Okay, so there's this new thing. It's called the solid state drive, right? Solid state drive. It's not, it doesn't have any moving parts. It's quiet. It's at rest. It's way more stable, right? It's longer lasting. You could throw two laptops out a window, in fact, and the one with the hard disk drive, the spinning disk, way more likely to just completely not work after you throw that one out and the other one. You know, you might be able to take that hard drive out and it just works perfectly. It's totally true. What's going on? Well, What's, what's your spiritual drive? What's, what spiritual drive are you working from right now? Are you running? Are you, over, are you on the verge of overheating? Is it all going to blow up at some point and break down? Or do you have the stability, the quiet calm of knowing that everything in your relationship with God has been accomplished? It is done. You rest in that. And you need to catch that fresh every day. What's, what's your spiritual drive? Did I sell you on the computer analogy? Huh? Did that work at all? You know, all I, 
If the church, if the whole Western church missed this for a thousand years, who am I to give you any suggestion or any confidence on how you're going to hang on to it? I don't claim at all to say I have the answers here. I might, at the most, I might say all I can do is offer a few just questions, perhaps, that'll open things up. You know, are you running and running in your spiritual life? Are you just running and running? suspecting, in a sense, suspecting almost that God's got a frown for you instead of a smile? Are you suspecting, as you're operating with God, do you suspect there's got to be a better way, a more peaceful way? Or let me ask it a different way. What's, what's the linchpin between you and God? Is it your behavior? Is it your actions? Or those of Christ? On a daily functional level, dig deep. What's driving you? You know, do you despair in the mess of your life? Just really, really assuming in the mess of your life that what you receive from God is disappointment in you. That is not the gospel. Because you receive grace and embrace and a smile on the face of God as he meets you. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we look to your, the tough words and to hang on to it, we pray for your Holy Spirit to make it plain, to make it come true, to make it clear to us. Whether we sit here, we've never even considered this as something that we center our life in or accept, and we wonder, you know, as we have a chance to come forward in a few minutes, we wonder, might this be our first time coming forward as a way of grabbing hold of the grace of God at the communion table? because we're finally seeing that you love us and that we don't have to work our way towards you, or whether, whether this is something that feels old hat to us and yet we have to admit it slips through our fingers every day. God, wherever our place, would you make it, would you make it come alive for us afresh today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, we move forward in our worship.